loves Chapel Hill. Good morning. I'm using this mic. Sorry about that. Brooke is up here whispering instructions to me. Thank you, Brooke. Brooke was like, turn on your mic. Thank you. <laughs> so good to be together today. Uh, I want to start this morning by saying happy Mother's Day and uh, celebrating the mothers who are with us today. We celebrate you and honor you today. Thank you for who you are in our lives. Thank you for the compassion and the comfort and the unconditional love that you give. And for many of you, you are the beginning of understanding the heart of God. And you are the first ones to teach us what the heart of God is like. So thank you for leading us in that discipleship journey and for being some of the first preachers of the gospel of the unconditional love of God, of the comfort of God in times when we need it, the compassion of God, and the example as well of what it looks like to live a life of love. So we thank you for that and honor you in that today. Uh, we also pause to acknowledge that there are many in our room today and in our lives for whom this is a difficult day. And so we don't ignore that reality. We acknowledge that reality. And many of us share in the pain of that, uh, the hurt, um, loss, hope unrealized. And we acknowledge the reality of that too. And we say that the arms of Jesus, open and extended, are wide enough to hold all of those things together in the same place at the same time. And so we don't have to ignore anyone's experience. We can celebrate and we can honor. And at the same time, we can take a step back and we can grieve and we can mourn and we can hope together too. And the arms of Jesus, open wide and extended, are strong enough and broad enough to hold all of those together at once. Amen? Amen. The church is designed to be an odd little community in the world. And one of those rare places where people from all experiences and backgrounds can find a place to be held together by the grace of Jesus. And we're thankful that you are that kind of community. Thank you for living into that and being that kind of place. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 4 today. And uh, we are looking at one of the stories that has been a core passage for us as a church community since we began. Uh, since we started meeting 13 years ago almost um, and actually, 13 years ago this month, right, Justin? Wasn't our first worship at the well in May? I think that's right, yeah. So 14 years ago, no, 13 years ago this month, we started meeting and gathering together uh, as a church family. And our very first meeting uh, public worship service that we ever had together, we were already uh, engaged in love missions in the community, and we were already engaged in a Bible study together that met in a restaurant here downtown. But our very first worship service that we ever had together uh, was out on the lawn next to the old well. And that was intentional. And you see us continuing that kind of rhythm 
uh, when we're, we're supposed to be in the Arboretum today. And we'll be there next week, hopefully. Uh, and we love that space and we love how that has become a home for us as well. And we're putting our roots down in all of these different places here in the community. And that's by design. Uh, we do that at, at the Forest Theater at times, and we, we've done that repeatedly out at the Old Well. So it's part of our annual rhythm every year as a church family. We go back outside for a season to meet together for worship, to remind us how we started so that we never lose that, that entrepreneurial kingdom spirit of remembering what it was like at the beginning but also to remind ourselves again and again and keep ourselves rooted in the truth that the church is not a building, that the church is not what happens within four walls, but we're always an outward moving mission and movement of Jesus in the world. And we are a part of something that's so much larger than what sits here on 123 East Franklin Street in the Varsity Theater. We are a small part of a much larger kingdom of God at work in the world. And so we started uh, that way, meeting by the old well, and it was intentional as a part of our intentional incarnation here in this community uh, because the old well is a symbol not just of the university but of the town of Chapel Hill and then also the historic significance of that. There was a time in the history of Chapel Hill and of the university that the old well was the water source for the entire community. And so we wanted to root ourselves there, tying into that symbolism and, and, and letting that preach for us, right? Letting, letting that communicate for us, but also that reminder of the history and the reminder that we weren't just starting something new here together, but we were joining in with something that God had already been at work doing for decades and decades and decades in the life of this community. We were joining up with that. And so for all of those reasons, we were meeting out there by the old well. I remember it was the night before our very first gathering in that May, 13 years ago. And uh, at that point, we were just a Bible study that was meeting uh, in that restaurant, about 10 to 15 people, probably something like that. And uh, I had no clue who was going to show up. All right. It was the night before our first gathering. And I went out there to the old well uh, to sit and to pray and to walk around and to beg God to let somebody show up. All right. I was very nervous. I was really nervous about the message. I was nervous about all of it. And I remember I had my Bible with me. So I was going over the message and trying to work through it and trying to get this right and uh, feeling all of those nerves and uh, praying that something would happen and somebody would show up. I was sitting on a bench there by the old well and uh, this young man walked past me. And he kind of walked like he slowed down when he got past me. And then he kept walking. And there was something I was like, I think maybe he wants to talk. But then I remembered, I think that about everyone. <laughs> and my kids remind me that I need to stop embarrassing them by just talking to random people. OK, maybe not everyone wants to have a conversation. And uh, so I kind of let it go. And I also I was trying to, you know, focus on what I was doing there. So I, I, I let him walk past. And then he walked back by again and slowed down again and kind of was looking over at me a little bit. And I was like, 
should I talk to him? Is this okay? Am I going to weird him out if I say hello? And I thought, all right, I'm just going to let him pass. But, but if he comes back again, then, then I'll say something. And sure enough, he came back by a third time and was walking kind of slow. And so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go for it. And so I said, hello, how you doing? And he immediately walked right over to me. I was right. He didn't want to talk to me. All right. He walked right over to me. And his first question was, hey, what are you reading? And I'm like, oh, man, this is as cliche as it can possibly get. I'm reading the Bible. Okay. And so I'm like, uh, I'm reading my Bible. And he's like, oh, oh, that's awesome. I just became a Christian three months ago, and I just moved here to town three days ago. Can you help me find a church that I can be a part of? And I was like, I think there's one meeting here tomorrow. You can. <laughs> His name was Chris Wang. Some of you probably remember Chris. He became a part of our church community. Sure enough, he showed up that next day and uh, became a part of our church community there for the first several years that we were meeting together. And it was such a reminder of the way that God opens the doors. And when he is calling you into a path, he's going to carve that path out for you. When he's calling you into something, when he's drawing you into something, when you walk in obedience to that, when you walk in surrender, when you walk in step with the spirit, he's carving that path out for you. Such a reminder. And I've been thinking back through some of those stories over these past few weeks. Another reason that that connects with me is because of the passage that we're in today. And this passage that has been such a core passage for us as a church community and set such a trajectory for us. And it has to do with an encounter, two people who meet at a well. It's found in John chapter 4. Some of you will recognize this story. Uh, if you've been a part of the story, our Bible study that I was talking about, that Bible study that started there uh, in the restaurant, and some of you are still part of that today. Uh, we go through the Gospel of John every fall, and sometimes we move slow, and that goes over into the spring. Uh, and then in the spring, we go through the book of Acts. And every year, this is one of my favorite passages for us to dig into together, and it has been such an important passage for us as a church family. So let's read it together. John chapter 4, and we're going to read the first chunk here together. It says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist, not the author of this gospel, okay? Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples, which is a beautiful picture that we're given there. It's just a statement that gets made but there's a lot that we can draw from that. And the reality of how Jesus is already commissioning and empowering his disciples to carry out his mission. And this was going to be his design. And in a few Sundays, we'll celebrate what's called Ascension Sunday, when Jesus gives that commission to his disciples to go out and to carry this message and to be his witnesses living this message in the world. And we already see at this point early in the story, He's already at that strategy of empowering others to live his message out in the world. When the Lord learned of this, of the Pharisees who were having trouble with him and uh, causing that controversy and conflict again. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea 
and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food, telling us that Jesus was alone there at this well with this Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jewish man, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then we get this statement here in the parentheses that says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We'll unpack that more together. But there's so much pain and history right there in that parentheses that we need to unpack together. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Jesus, walk with us as we work through this passage today. This story that is about you, we call it the story of the woman at the well, but it's really about you, and we understand that. We pray that you would teach us, reveal things to us, remind us of what we need to know, what we have learned, but what we have failed to live. Challenge us. We ask for you to point out the places where we are afraid to go. And you would fill us with the courage of your love. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. So a few things that we have to understand here uh, about the context. And we get this right from the bat. And as John is unfolding this story for us, uh, there are several things that, that stand out. Uh, he makes them as very simple statements and puts them right out there, knowing that the original audience understands the background, understands all of the tension in what he is saying. He gets that, and we don't. 
We are so removed from the reality of the context of this passage. There are ways in which we're already making the connections and how we could see it connect to our lives today and our culture today and the place and time in which we live. But there are things that we don't know because of when and where we are. And that's the purpose of understanding context. Of course, we need to read what the scripture says and take what the scripture says seriously and allow it to shape our lives and root ourselves in it. But we don't only ask the question of what, we also ask the question of when. When is this taking place? What is this time period like? We ask the question of where. What's the geography here? What's the, all of the background and the culture of what's happening in this moment, and then we can get closer to the why of what is being said here. So we want to know the what, we want to get to the why, and in order to get to the why, a lot of times we have to go through the when and the where in order to get there. And so we're going to do a little bit of that together. Uh, we get this sense right from the start when it says, now he had to go through Samaria, and we remember that parentheses, right? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We know that in this day and time, there was such a deep divide between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. And even the statement that gets made of he had to go through Samaria, actually he didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria. It was not the only path for him to take. The reason we know it wasn't the only path for him to take is because the history of it tells us that Jewish people wanted so little to do with the Samaritans and the Samaritans wanted so little to do with the Jewish people that Jewish people had already developed a different route around it. And they were willing to go extremely out of their way just so that they didn't, didn't step foot in Samaria. And there was a different path that Jesus could have taken, and it was a well-known path to everybody in that day and time. So when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, it doesn't mean because that was the only road. It means because he was on a mission and he was going there on purpose. So the fact that Jesus decides to chart his course right through Samaria, we can see that there's purpose to this. And he did that on purpose. The history here, if you want to dig into it a little bit deeper from a scriptural standpoint, uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 through 41. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 through 41 lays out a little bit of the history. And in short, it goes like this. The Jewish people had been taken captive and into exile by the Assyrians. And as they're taken out of their homeland and out of the region where they were living there and into captivity in Assyria, some of them were left behind. And the king of Assyria didn't want to lose that land that he had now conquered. And so he occupied it. He sent people from different uh, regions around to go and to settle there and some of his own people to go and to settle there so that that space would continue to flourish. And as those people from the different people groups from around went in and settled that space and they began to live with the Jewish people who were left behind, some of those Jewish people began to take on some of the religious practices 
that were being imported by the people who were coming to settle that land again. And so meanwhile, while you have some of the Jewish people being taken away into captivity into Assyria and some of them, a remnant of them, fighting hard to remain true to the scriptures and to what they knew and to live in obedience to the word of God, you have another group of people who are now taking on these practices. Some who are in the heat of captivity who are trying to stand firm. Some who are still back at home who have caved in. That's how the Jewish people saw that. The other part of that is that part of the reason it tells us for the captivity is that the Jewish people had also lost their way. That it wasn't just the Samaritans who were adopting some of these practices, but the whole group of people had been doing the same thing. And so we've got two groups of people, neither one of them completely innocent, neither one of them completely guilty of what they're being charged of, completely misunderstanding each other, refusing to be reconciled by each other, each hating each other because they believed it's what God wanted them to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Each hating each other in the name of allegiance to God. And doesn't that still happen? Isn't that our story over and over again? The writer Anne Lamott says, you know that you have created God in your own image. What a play on words, because we know that humanity is created in the image of God. But she says, we create God in our own image. And you know that this is happening when it turns out that God just happens to hate all the same people that you do. And so both had become guilty of this, of believing that in order to love God, they had to hate somebody else. And that is utterly wrong and against the heart and the character of who God is. And Jesus had set his course straight into the heart of Samaria to begin to build that bridge back. That's why he went. So Jesus had to go through Samaria, not because it was the only route, but because it was a central part of his mission and what he had come to do. It tells us that this well is uh, Jacob's well, and it was near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Again, it just passes over that and it expects us to know. But a little bit of that history, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 33, when Jacob settles in this place and digs a well, it tells us there that, that he settles, he sets up camp, and he kind of establishes a place on this plot of ground. And it happens in Genesis 33, which is the same chapter right before in 33. It tells us that Jacob and his brother Esau had finally been brought into reconciliation. And right after Jacob and Esau are brought into reconciliation, Jacob settles on this land where scholars believe Jacob's well was located. And that's where Jesus is meeting with this Samaritan woman. If we think back on that history, and it mentions Jacob's son, Joseph. 
And again, that, that opens, this, um, opens up for us that background and that history. And we think about Jacob and his brother Esau were set against each other and God brings reconciliation. But it wasn't just Jacob and his brother Esau, it was also Jacob's son Joseph and Jacob's other sons who turned on Joseph and ended up selling him into slavery, leaving him for dead, pretending that he was dead and hoping that he was. Later, Joseph and his brothers are also reconciled, and that reconciliation ends up bringing about the rescue of the people of Israel. So it's Joseph and his brothers. It's Joseph's dad, Jacob, and his brother, Esau. It's Jacob's dad, Isaac, and his brother, Ishmael. It's the history of humanity over and over again. And right at this same spot, this, this pin drop in the middle of that huge story, Jesus shows up to bring about reconciliation between these shared descendants of Abraham, bringing reconciliation to the children of Abraham once again. That's why he had to go through Samaria, and that's why he meets her right there at Jacob's well. As we go further into the story, we see immediately that water is going to play an important role in this. And water, uh, because they're meeting at the well, obviously, and then Jesus decides to use water as this symbol of this kind of life that he is offering her, this transformation that he is offering her and what that reconciliation and what that grace is going to look like in her life. And so he borrows this image of water to describe what he is there to give to her. Now, we all understand the importance of water, but also take yourself back into time and to another place in the world in an arid kind of climate. Back then, when we're talking water, and water is essential to life for every one of us now, but think about it in that culture as well and how powerful this is for Jesus to meet her at this well and to say this thing that I am offering you is essential to your life. I am offering you life itself that comes through me. It's absolutely powerful. Water is an important symbol all the way throughout Scripture and if you start to think about all the times you see water show up, I mean, it's, it's endless, the amount of examples that we could come up with together. But it's not just the whole of Scripture. It's also very specific to the Gospel of John. John is intentionally layering water imagery over and over and over again as he's telling this new creation story of Jesus. In John chapter 1, we meet John the Baptist who is baptizing people in spoiler alert water, okay? John chapter 2, we get the very first miracle of Jesus, which is what? Turning water into wine at the wedding. In John chapter 3, we get Jesus' meeting with the Pharisee. Anybody remember his name? Who's the Pharisee that he meets with under the cover of darkness? Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus that he must be born of water and of 
the Spirit, pointing to baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's much of the symbolism that we're seeing here in this passage as well. In chapter 4, of course, we get the woman at the well. In chapter 5, we get Jesus healing a person beside the pool. In chapter 6, we get Jesus walking on water. In chapter 7, we get Jesus standing up at the temple in the middle of this festival and declaring that anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. And streams of living water will well up from within you. It's over and over and over and over again. And as John goes through the gospel, we get Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We get Jesus having his side uh, pierced with the spear. And out of his side of his crucifixion flows blood and water. And then after Jesus is resurrected and he meets with his disciples one more time, where does he meet with them? By the Sea of Galilee. Exactly. And so we see it over and over, and he does this on purpose. He does this on purpose. And so when it's so clear like this, we lean in because we know that he's trying to tell us something. So what is he trying to tell us? What is he trying to tell us? In this offer that Jesus gives to her, it's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful, and it has two layers to it, really. We get the cleansing use. for That's why she would have been there to draw water, to use this in her home for cleansing on the one hand, to wash things, and then, of course, to drink. And we see the importance of both of those, even in our lives today. Just what a key, essential part of our lives, water is how long can you live without food? Who remembers? A week. A week? Okay. 30 days? 40 days. What you got, Sam? What'd you say, buddy? All right. That's the preacher's kid right there. <laughs> Thanks for helping me out, buddy. All right. Sam is right. 40 days. Good job, buddy. If he wasn't right, I probably would still tell him he was right. Thanks for speaking out, bud. I love it. Awesome. <laughs> 40 days you can go without food. How long can you live without water? Three days. Look at that. How incredible. Obviously, we know the essential part that food plays in our lives and how we have to have it to live. But look at what water is to us. Three days. And as we've said before, without food, you can go more than a month. Without water, you can barely make it out of a weekend. This is how essential it is. And Jesus is comparing himself to that. And he's saying, what I have to offer you is cleansing to give you a brand new life, new life in me. No matter what you have done before, washed away, made new, new creation. What a hope. What a hope. But it's not just a one-time moment of being washed clean. We're talking an ongoing, perpetual kind of life in him that wells up from within you because of the presence of Christ in us, because of the Holy Spirit who fills us up. And the river of life taking root within us and flowing up in us and flowing out of us into a thirsty world is absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And this is what he offers her. 
And also beautiful is the bridge that he's building in doing this. As we've talked about that break between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, we also realize that it's not just uh, the fact that it's a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan person, but a Samaritan woman. And in this day and time, the culture that this is happening in, that was absolutely forbidden, unheard of, scandalous, controversial. It's next to impossible to overstate the amount of courage that is on display here in Jesus crossing these lines in order to offer that kind of gift to her. It's hard to overstate it. We see that it's set by a well in Samaria in first century A.D. But for our context, maybe you could imagine it happening on a bus in Montgomery, Montgomery Alabama, 1955. Or at a lunch counter in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960. This is the kind of controversy and courage that we see on display here with Jesus blowing through the barriers that everyone else has chosen to live by and has demanded that others should live by too. But like we say, he will not be held back. His love has the courage to cross every line drawn by hate and climb every wall built by fear. Nothing can hold it back. No division is too deep for him. Her response to this is that she can't believe it. She can hardly believe it. And so she says, please give me this water that you're talking about. It doesn't quite click with her yet, but she has that curiosity and she has that thirst for what Jesus is talking about. She still thinks he's talking about uh, so that she won't have to come to this well every day. And Jesus is striking at something deeper there. But we see the curiosity and we see him meeting her there, even when she doesn't quite understand yet. And she says, I want this. And so she asks for it. And what happens next in the story is gut wrenching. It says, she said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not even your husband. What you have just said is quite true. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? We already see how Jesus is willing to be controversial and crossing these lines, and now it seems as if he's willing to be controversial in confronting her sin. Jesus is absolutely willing to be controversial in confronting our sin. Jesus has zero fear in confronting our sin. And over and over again, we see people pointing to this passage as proof of that. We know that that's true. But over and over again, people point to this story. And when they get to this point, they celebrate the fact that Jesus holds this sin up to her face. That he's calling her this promiscuous woman who's jumping from one man to the next to the next, never satisfied. Bailing on one, 
and going to whoever is next. And we celebrate that Jesus calls that out. But is that what's really happening here? No. Most likely not. In this day and time, what kind of rights did women have in this culture? Anybody got a number they want to put on it? Go, Cole. Zero. Exactly. Exactly. As gut-wrenching as that is, you are exactly right. And what kind of rights did men have? All of them. All of them. In this patriarchal culture of this place and of this time, the women had next to no rights at all. And tragically, as difficult as it even is for us to articulate, the reality is that they were viewed as the property of the most significant man in their lives. That is gut-wrenching. But that was the reality into which Jesus is speaking. So what we most likely have here is not a woman who is promiscuous, moving from one man to the next. In this day and in this culture, men could divorce their wives for any reason that they wanted to cook up, and the women had nothing they could do about it. And in this day and in this time, carrying around the weight of having been divorced, closed so many doors and there was a shame and there was a stigma attached to that that is gut-wrenching for us to think about and so what we have here one other thing is is that men were seen as the ones who would provide and in many ways, the women of this culture and this time were very dependent on whoever that significant man was in their life, either a father or a husband. And when those bonds are lost, there's not much social safety net for a person to fall back on. So what we have here is most likely not a woman who's been living in pr promiscuity, jumping from one man to the next. What we most likely have here is a woman who time after time has been abandoned by the one person in her life that she trusted the most, that she needed the most. A person who had promised to be there and then wasn't. And abandoned her over and over again. First husband gone second husband abandoned third husband abandoned fourth husband abandoned fifth husband abandoned and the guy that she's with now won't even give her the dignity of saying that she is his wife it's gut-wrenching and this is why she says sir i have no husband because she wants to hide because of the shame that she carries. But as we've said over and over again, Jesus does not build taller piles of shame. 
he digs deeper wells of grace. And that's exactly what he does in this moment. He cuts right through all of that shame. He cuts right through all of that hiding. And he says, I know, I know your story. I know every twist and every turn of it. I know your story. And you think that if you reveal your whole story to me, then I'm going to pull back on this offer, that I'm going to be like every one of those other men who made a promise to you and then failed on it and abandoned you on it. But I'm not like that. My word is good. I am the word and I am good. And this offer still stands for you. I know every twist of your story. I know every turn of the road. I know every tear that you have ever cried. And not a single tear you have cried has hit the ground. I know every single one of them. And I'm looking at you and I'm saying, this is good for you. I've charted a course directly here to bring you this good news. And this is good for you. And he's saying that to each and every one of us today as well. This kind of grace, this depth of grace is good for you. Back to our friend Chris that we met at the old well that night. A few weeks after that, we were hanging out together and uh, we were having a meal together. Some of us were sitting around a table and Chris was an economics major at UNC. And I remember him saying to us, you know what? I can't understand like as an economics person who studies this stuff over and over again. The thing that I cannot make sense of in economic terms is grace. I cannot make sense of grace. And then he took a napkin and he started making graphs. It was awesome. All right. So he's trying to make a graph that represents the reality of grace in terms of the laws of supply and demand. And we were just like, I don't know what you're talking about, but these graphs look cool. All right. Keep them coming. So he's trying to do that and trying to force this into that realm of economics and make sense of it in terms of that. And I'll never forget what he said at the end. At the, at the end, his final thought was, I think this is it. I think this is just where I have to stay with it. I just have to say, if price is free and supply is infinite, then demand is satisfied. If price is free... And, demand, and, and supply is infinite, then demand is satisfied. And that might be one of the most beautiful sermons on grace I've ever heard in my life. This is free and it's infinite. And the demand is satisfied because of the person of Jesus. He is meeting each and every one of us wherever we are in this moment. He comes to us. He charts the course to us, not because he has to, because he wants to. And he's driven to do this by the mission of who he is. And he offers us that fresh life, something that wells up from within us that comes from him. And we might not fully understand it yet, but he's just inviting us to embrace the offer. And then he'll make sense of it as we continue to go. 
He's challenging us to join him in crossing these lines and refusing to live by the barriers that others have told us that we have to live by. And he's inviting us to be a part of this rising tide of his kingdom, this overflowing abundance from this well of grace. And he's sending us out to share that. What we have at the end of the story is it says that leaving her water jar behind, she believed him. She believed him. She didn't think she was going to need it anymore. I love that picture. She leaves her water jar behind and she ran back to her town. And she began to tell everyone, come and see this man who told me everything about myself. And it says that the people from that community started making their way out to Jesus. I love it. In one of the translations, it says, and the people of that community started streaming out to Jesus. Who is the well? I love that. So beautiful. And he invites us to be a part of this. And to continue to carry the reality of the transformation that we've experienced. We've drawn from the well. And we found it to be more than what we could imagine. And he's inviting us to be that for others as well. Not a closed loop where we're on the inside and everyone else is on the outside but instead keep drawing that circle wider and wider and wider. And instead of a closed loop that has us in the middle and everyone else on the outside, we begin to see it as this ripple effect of redemption that continues to flow out from the source of the well himself. Jesus is the living water. He is our source of life. And as he reminded his disciples and challenged his disciples on his last night with them, he is also the bread of life and the blood of life as well. And when Jesus was there on that last night with his disciples around the table, he took the bread that was on the table and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body. Broken to make you whole. And he took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time you share in this meal together, remember what I have done. And continue to carry that message to the world around you. Offering that same redemption that you have experienced yourself. That same forgiveness. That same endless well of grace. Let it well up within you and overflow out of you into the world around you. So we're going to share in this meal together. And we have crossed a bit of a line together today where for the last more than two years, uh, we have not shared communion in the way that we used to share communion. And we're returning to that today. We're going to invite you to come down the aisle and we'll be standing here to serve communion. And when you come to the bread, we'll invite you to tear off a piece of the bread 
And then you'll step to the cup and you will dip that cup into, or you'll dip that bread into the cup. And then you taste and see that the Lord is good. This is how we'll be sharing communion again together today. We are being considerate of the reality that we are still in. And so we invite each person, as you step forward, please use some of the hand sanitizer for the sake of the people who are behind you. And we also ask you to make sure that only the bread is what is dipped into the cup. All right. The good news about that is that you don't have to hold a tiny little crumb. What do we say about that? No crumbs in the kingdom. All right. Tear off a big piece of bread. And as we've said over and over again, grace enough to choke on. Okay. So but don't don't do that. So tear off a big piece of the bread. We have plenty to go around. Dip it into the cup and share in this meal. Remembering the water of life. Jesus says that's who he is. Remembering the bread of life. Jesus promises that that is who he is. Remembering the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. It's for us. It is for you. It is for you. Amen. Let's share in this meal together.